Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm Diadam Sulongkumar, the host of this channel. Today, I'm here with Dr. Rick Pills to talk about his book, Life Without God, An Outsider Look at Atheism. I think this is a very interesting book in a sense that it looks at atheism, Christianity, and obviously the whole aspect of religion as such and the aspect of non-belief. And I think this is also a work which is of personal interest to me in the sense that it takes a philosophical angle to understanding these aspects of uh, certain aspects of religion and uh, aspects of non-belief. So um, without discussing or going much into the book itself, let me straight away go to the author himself. And so, yeah, Dr. Pills, can you tell us something about yourself? Sure. Um, and, and thank you for having me on this podcast. Um, I'm a professor of religion and theology as well as philosophy at the Free University of Amsterdam. And I am interested in what's called the ethics of belief. So how people form beliefs and what we should expect when it comes to belief formation and how belief informs and influences action, uh, both when it comes to religious views um, and ordinary like daily life views, political views, and also extremist views, actually. Interesting. So... Um... You have written this book, Life Without God, an outsider look at atheism. So um, what made you write this book or what was the journey towards writing this book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a very specific journey um, that maybe started one evening. Uh, and I described that at the outset, at the beginning of the book. So I was listening and, and viewing a debate on um, that, that has been recorded and is to be found on YouTube between William Lane Craig, a Christian apologist, and Lewis Wolpert, um, a secular secularist and an atheist. And um, Craig gives, gives these five arguments for the existence of God, you know, step by step, the premises, how it follows logically and so on. And then Lewis Wolpert gave, gave his speech and there was virtually no argument in there. And, uh, and yet um, the audience loved what he said. And, and, and what also struck me is time and again, he would say things like, I'm very sorry to tell you, sorry, excuse me. But, and then he would say something else. And that really got me interested. And I thought, what on earth is going on here? So, because I am, as a philosopher and theologian, I'm interested in whether God exists and what the arguments for and against believing God are and so on. And I thought, maybe I've been missing out on something. And then, then I thought, maybe I should study atheists and what motivates atheists. Maybe they're motivated by arguments, but maybe also by things that are not primarily arguments. Uh, in the same way as I, as a religious believer, am not just motivated by arguments, but also by experiences and intuitions and tradition and so on. So that's what I try to do in this book. Delve, uh, delve a little bit deeper and dig a little bit deeper. Um, interesting. Yeah, so can you uh, spell out some of the questions that you actually try to uncover in the book? Sure, yeah. So I start out with a question... Um, uh, saying, look, the major things we believe in in life are not primarily motivated by arguments, like belief in God, I think belief in democracy, or belief in the equality of men and women, and probably also belief in atheism. So what is it motivated by? So the, I start out the book with um, an overview of various kinds of things that motivate people to be atheists. And when I say atheists, I mean people who are convinced that there is no God and that there are no gods. Right. 
So all major religions in the world, they are strictly speaking, just false in, in, in their claims about the supernatural. Um, so, I, so what I do is rather than just thinking about it, I started to read up on uh, the life stories of atheists in various books and on vi in videos and so on. And um, I come up with various motivations. So one of them being the desire to think independently. So not being an authority, authority, a religious authority, which tells one to, what to believe or following heroes or certain traumatic experiences or moral repugnance towards God or towards religious believers or towards faith. So, yeah, I explore those motivations. That's that's one really important thing in the book. And can I mention two more things that I find really important? Sure, sure. Yeah. Okay. So two other things I find really important that I try to do in the book is then ask the question, um, to what extent can these non-argumentative motivations make atheism rational? So can atheism be made rational or justified by way of experience, for instance, trauma or the emptiness of life or the indifference of the universe? Um, and how does that relate to religious experience? Can that make belief in God or in God's rational? And then the final thing I try to do in the book is um, has to do with arguments for atheism. So very often I think what religious uh, believers do is try to refute these arguments and they they believe that once they've refuted these arguments we are done with them and i think that's wrong i think we can actually learn a lot from these arguments whether you're actually convinced by them or not so in the final part of the book i show how atheistic arguments can help us to get rid of images of god or believe in god that are harmful or misguided or just not sound in various ways so we can all learn a lot from them that's the that's a, that's an important message yeah yeah interesting so let's unpack all of those aspects one by one right and the first thing that i want to go into is the uh, the initial definition of atheism itself or definition of an atheist itself obviously um see the word also connotes atheist atheism atheist now um I kind of, um, I mean, the way I think about this, I feel like, I, I mean, when you're, when we are talking about atheists, obviously there is also an assumption that obviously uh, there is certain form of God or gods uh, uh, about, you know, negating about certain form of God or gods, right? So this is where uh, I think when you talk about the question of atheism, it also depends on atheism or an atheist relation to what, right? So in relation to Christianity or in relation to Hinduism, Buddhism or whatever it may be. So that question of atheist or who is an atheist, what is an atheist becomes very complex in that sense, it depends on very much culturally situated also. So can you explore and expand on this aspect of atheism and atheism, yeah? Yeah, sure. So I think you're spot on. Um, so atheism is a is a riddle concept, really, and a confusing one, uh, in the sense that there are different kinds and varieties of atheism that are often lumped together. So one thing I try to do in the book is to first to keep two things clearly apart, which, uh, which is called negative and positive atheism. So negative atheism is just a fact that you are not a religious believer. So you do not believe in God or in gods, basically, or souls, things like that. It doesn't mean the stronger thing, which is called positive atheism, uh, which is that you are actually convinced that there is no God and that there are no gods. So so negative atheists would be agnostics in many cases, right? So they, they would say things like, maybe there is a God, maybe there is no God. I just don't know. Or they could even go further and say, I cannot know or we cannot know. But the positive atheists think that they can know. They claim that they know that there is no God, right? 
So that's an important and helpful distinction. And then I think you're right. What exactly is negated here or denied here? Which which god or which gods? And um, yeah, so that comes in varieties. I think people like Richard Dawkins, like, so influential new atheists, would say that they they would deny the existence of any god. Um, so any surely the Christian god, the god of Islam and Judaism, but also the many gods of Hinduism and Buddhism, for instance. Um, or uh, certain varieties, maybe, of Buddhism. Uh, of course, Buddhism, for one, is a complex one because it has, right, to, to a large extent, it doesn't really have the clear concept of a personal God that, for instance, the Abrahamic uh, faiths have. So that's a challenging one. Um, there are people who say that they're both Buddhists and atheists. So it's a tricky religion. Um, but at least they would deny the existence of any kind of supernatural entity, be that a God. Uh, a deist god, so a god who doesn't intervene in reality, or a theistic god, a god who acts in reality, demons, angels, immaterial souls, anything like that. And of course, that means that a lot of atheists um, would say that they are naturalists, so they believe only the natural world exists. But uh, but even that is is um is is not an unambiguous claim because what is the natural world? Is that just matter? Is that just the material cosmos, or is it also numbers and properties? Um, or things like sets, for instance. So there are lots of, or maybe ethical properties, moral realities, <laughs> necessary truths, logical truths, right? So it, it, all of these things raise a lot, a lot of questions. Um, so, so basically, I go with a positive atheist atheism, which says that there is no god, that there are no gods, and uh, which just denies the existence of any kind of supernatural entity that, you know, could create the universe, for instance. Yeah, um, interesting. Yeah, so, yeah, so when you're talking about um, motivations, right, motivation for atheism or motiv motivations for being an atheist, can you pick out some of the important thing or some of the uh, points that you have discussed and expand on it? Uh, uh, yes, you have discussed uh, a lot in the chapter, but can you pick out some of the points that you think is important and expand on it? Yeah. Right, yeah, so... So there are quite a few examples in the first chapter. I think one that, that I find really interesting is the motivation of wanting to think independently. I think that is a, that is a beautiful example of what can motivate one. So the idea is that um, a lot of religious believers would kind of defer to religious authorities, for instance, the Pope or the Magisterium or the Bible or the Quran or the Tanakh, for instance, or maybe oral tradition, rather than thinking for themselves. And I think there is an important point to, the, to, to this motivation. Um, there is great value to thinking for oneself, right? Uh, that is one thing that uh, the Enlightenment has, has taught us, even though I think a lot of people thought for themselves before that. Um, but even so, I think I also point out that there are limitations to uh, the power of thinking for oneself. I think the vast majority of things we know is not based on what we have thought for ourselves, but on the testimony of other people. For instance, when it comes to science, Right. Most of science is something that we have not discovered ourselves or could even discover ourselves. We're just very limited beings. So we have to rely on others all the time. Um, um, but of course, I mean, some religious traditions have been dogmatic, closed minded. Uh, so it gives us a warning, but I don't think it's a it's a good and solid reason to be an atheist. Um, but, but it's worthwhile paying attention to also in public debates and in conversation with atheists. Right. So I, I fully understand if there's this worldview that requires thinking dogmatically or just relying on others, 
not thinking for oneself. That is utterly unattractive. I I feel not in the slightest attracted to the, such a worldview, right? So that makes sense. So we should discuss that. Yeah, this is one example. Great, great. Um, so uh, you go on to discuss about what is known as the atheistic framework. So can you pick out some of the frameworks that you talk about and or one or two which you feel like is very important and expand on that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah so... Um, so the, indeed, I move on to frameworks, and there the idea is um, that even apart from arguments and motivations, like the desire to think independently or heroism, um, there are certain cognitive frameworks. So they are like a paradigm or framework for approaching the world. And if you're in a particular paradigm, sometimes then discussing arguments for and against belief in God doesn't make much sense. Um so you should discuss those frameworks instead and whether they are tenable. So one example of that I give in the, in the book is something I call distensionism. I think that has not been discussed enough. And the idea of distensionism that I think a lot of atheists embrace is that if you want to know whether God exists or not, you should kind of distance yourself from the situation and just put uh, all argumentative evidence on the table. So all the pros and all the cons, and then you weigh them as objectively as you can, and then you take a position. And I think that framework is misleading for finding out the truth about the existence of God. It is, of course, there's argumentative evidence out there, but there's also other things. So religious people would emphasize that if you want to find out whether there is a supernatural realm, you should engage with it. You should pray, for instance, right? Or you engage with a religious community and its traditions and practices. Um, maybe in a se somewhat similar to when you're in a relationship, if you want to find out whether... You are. You want to love this person, whether the relationship is viable. Do you step back and just make a list of arguments on both sides, right? You could do that, but you would miss out on crucial things. You should engage in it and try things out. Um, and, of, and that, of course, makes sense because if, if there is a God, I don't think he would prefer or have a preference for people with an IQ of 130 or more, right? Uh, so I, I guess a, a good God would reach out to people of all kinds in various ways by way of experience for instance so yeah that's one important framework that has been overlooked somewhat i believe yeah great uh, that is an interesting point yeah uh, let's let's move on and i think you talk about the presumption of atheism and uh, you also talk about some of the points so here also can you pick out one or two important points and expand on that yeah uh, so so those are the um so the the arguments could you repeat that yeah, presumptions of atheism, yeah. Oh, the presumption of atheism. You talk about yeah, certain sure. presumptions. Sure, yeah. So um, there is an argument in the literature, and that has been leveled by Anthony Flew, which is called the presumption of atheism. And the idea is that um, we should all presume that there is no God unless we encounter really good evidence for the existence of a God. And um, <laughs> so, uh, so I explore that idea in the book, but I also explore whether maybe the opposite holds, whether there is a presumption for theism. So maybe we should all assume that there is a God unless we have really good evidence to think that there is no God. So I see whether the tables can be turned. And um, so what I argue in the book is that maybe there is a bit of an asymmetry between belief in God and atheism. So I argue like, like this, basically. If there is a God, then it is likely that God reveals himself, herself, themselves, to humans in various ways, right? By way of revelation, intuition, experience, tradition, and so on. That's what a good God would do, um, I think. So, and in fact, of course, we see hundreds of millions of people in various religions on earth, 
uh, who claim to have had experiences of God in various ways, right? So it's all over the place. All right, so maybe that is one way in which one can know that there is a God. Now let us turn to atheism. Uh, of course, there are the arguments, but can you also know that there is no God without any arguments? So by way of experience, how would that work? And I think that's something that has gotten very little attention somehow in the literature. So think of experiences like trauma or the emptiness of life or just horrible evil. Can that, can that experience render belief in the non-existence of God rational without any argument? And there I'm more, more skeptical, to be honest. So an example I give is, for instance, I'm sitting in front of my desk now, right? Here's my desk. I can see straight away that there is no, let's say, a cat or a dog on, on my desk, right? So in that it's empty in the sense of there being no dog or cat. How do I know that? Well, I see it straight away because I can see the desk at once. So I, ca I can believe rationally in the non-existence of certain things when I can oversee them. But look, reality is not at all like that as a whole, right? I can't just oversee all of reality at once, right? So, so the, the belief that there is no God seems to be very different from the belief in the absence of other sorts of things in a limited time and a limited space. Right, so I give some sort of evolutionary argument in, in that chapter to think that um, if atheism is to be rational, it really requires arguments and that religious belief is remarkably different and you might think that's unfair, but I, I can't I can't help it. I'm afraid that's just the way things are. And everyone who disagrees, um, let let me know why and, and give me an argument to the contrary. Yeah, interesting. I think um, I will push more on some of the things that has been um, you know discussed uh, later on. But let let me just move on to the aspect of fate, right? And I think um, again like the word uh, atheism, atheism, or like the word religion, which connotes so many things. I think faith is also a word that connotes many things as to how, you know, one relates to this uh, supernatural, right? So uh, now you have a chapter on, uh, you know, how yeah, the aspect of atheism and faith. So um, can you unpack here, why, what do you mean by faith here? And, you know, how atheists understand what faith is and it, all, all the discussion does surrounding this one can you unpike more on this yeah right right yeah yeah i think that's fantastic um what is helpful maybe here is to know that there's a debate in the philosophy of religion about the nature of faith and faith often used to be understood in terms of belief and i think this testifies to the fact that most probably most philosophers of religions of religion have been protestants living in the west so it's this narrow conception of religious faith as believing say that God exists, or that there are gods, or that God is good, or that the world is created by God, or that God is triune, or that he reveals himself in the Quran or the Bible, right? Things like that. So this is called the doxastic conception of faith, from the Greek doxa, opinion, or view, or belief. And I think nowadays the, that view is abandoned by most philosophers of religion. And I'm thinking of people like um, Daniel McCoyne, for instance, and Jonathan Kronvik and um, Megan Page and others, who have argued that this is a misconstrual of faith. And they come up with different accounts. For instance, tr uh, faith as trusting God or hoping certain things or committing oneself to certain truths and ideals, um, living a religious life. And this, they sometimes appeal to Abraham. So Abraham in the, in the Old Testament or the First Testament is called the father of, of faith. And what do we know about the beliefs of Abram? 
well, very little, <laughs> right? We don't know exactly what he believed, but we, we do know that he wanted to obey and, and follow God, right? We do know that. So apparently, um, being a person of faith is more a matter of listening, obeying, choosing to live one's life a certain way. And, um, and I think some atheistic arguments can be helpful in this regard. So they help us to clarify the nature of, the nature of religious faith or Christian faith in particular, Islamic faith, right? It's not just a matter of believing things, believing truths or believing propositions. Yeah, um, a quite interesting area of understanding of faith, right? Um, um, that's uh, interesting to unpack, yeah. Uh, so the um, uh, the last thing that you uh, continue to discuss is on the atheistic argument in God. And I think this um, the question of atheism and God, obviously many of these discussions surrounding atheism and God is something which has been discussed surrounding Christianity in that sense, because I think philosophy of religion in that sense is also very much influenced by the Christian idea of God and its worldview. And also, uh, obviously, that there are uh, other counter philosophy of religion that is coming up a lot and people are into this but i think this is an interesting discussion because i think this is something which uh here is something which i also think about myself right so for instance you know um i mean i i I don't think i can i i give or i can call myself an atheist but i think in one sense i also don't think that you know the kind of gods that the religion belief exists in that sense right so there is this uh, tension of uh, you know um, this tension of understanding this notion and idea of god and and that is why i also continue to emphasize on this cultural context and uh, atheists in, in relation to what right because there can be people who believe or or who practice certain religious rituals or or all of those aspects but can go I still go themselves as an atheist so this relation in that sense the argumentative aspect of the understanding of god and the arguments there and then also the personal practical relation to it i think there might be a certain form of dissonance within these aspects of the argumentative aspect and the understanding of god and all that this surrounding the uh, this discussion so can you unpack more on this yeah 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 i think i think you're spot on and i think it shows a big big weakness really in the contemporary philosophy of religion debate, namely that it's carried out most, almost entirely by Christian philosophers of religion, then a few radical or sometimes radical atheists or moderate atheists. Nowadays, a few Islamic philosophers of religion, but very few from the other world religions, maybe particularly Hinduism and, and Buddhism. And I would love for them to, to come on board and make the field more diverse. It's also, by the way, a particularly male discipline still, right? Uh, so there's um, and and a wide discipline also. So there's ample room for more diversity, and that may actually impact the the debate on atheism as well, and make it more culturally embedded in different contexts than than just a Western concept context and and that of Judeo the Judeo Christian tradition, so to say. So I think uh, I, that will be more than welcome and really really needed actually. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So. Um... Coming to the reform epistemology and coming to the discussion on the properly basic belief, which you discuss in your book in relation to atheism. So again, the atheist standpoint be properly basic belief like uh, a religious standpoint um, or as Alvin Plantinga would argue, the Christian standpoint. So um, 
Why or why not? Can you explain? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe a little bit by way of background. So reformed epistemology is developed by Alvin Plantinga, Nicholas Waterstorff, and William Olson to some extent, says that um, be- believing God can be properly basic. So it can be basic, uh, that is not based on any arguments, and yet properly basic, that is reliably formed and, and rational, right? And um, th- there's various ways you can argue for that, but but... In a way, belief in God would be similar to, for instance, beliefs based on memory. I remember what I had for breakfast this morning, and I think that is irrational. I had yogurt, right? I can believe that rationally, but I don't have any arguments for it. I couldn't, like, demonstratively show it to you. And yet it is perfectly rational because it's, because it's formed in a reliable way in the right sorts of environment, right? Um, and the idea of Reformed epistemology is that if there is a God, then it is very likely that belief in God is also formed without any arguments, just either directly or maybe on the basis of some sort of experience upon seeing the beauty of nature or maybe prayer or, uh, I don't know, fasting or other religious practices, right? It just arises because it's it arises out of um, from a mechanism that God has built in us, so to say. It's called a sensus divinitatis, a sense of divinity that can be activated. And I think nowadays there's a lot of empirical evidence actually to think that Belief in God, belief in the afterlife, and so on, is something that comes natural to people. It's it's something inbuilt that we we can try to get rid of it, but it's not as if it's instilled by priests and pastors and so on. It's already there in, in young children, even young children of atheists. Anyway, so then the question is, uh, what about atheism? Can that arise in a similar way? Um, but of course, if uh, if there is no God, it's it cannot be brought about by a mechanism that God has instilled in us. So what? What would the mechanism be and how could it track truth about the non-existence of God in reality? And there I say it's quite different from, for instance, visual perception, right? So I, I can see that there is, if I look out, out of the window, I see a tree there, right? Well, um, there's an evolutionary explanation of why I can track truth about trees. If I don't see trees, I bump into them, right? And that can be harmful. And the same for, say, uh, belief in tigers that I can hear I, I, I can hear them, I can see them and so on, and it makes an evolutionary difference whether I see them or hear them or not, right? If I don't, I'm, I'm more likely to die right? So that holds for, for material objects, but it doesn't hold for the existence or non-existence of God right? Um, it doesn't directly make a difference to whether we, we live or die if we track truth about that um, so it's quite different for material objects, so how would it be a properly basic belief. That's the that's the big challenge. And I explore a couple of options, and I suggest in the book that it's not clear that it can be properly basic. And of course, that's not the end for it for atheism. We could still argue that there are good arguments against the existence of God. But it's um, yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon that I think has not received uh, attention so far and deserves attention. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's that's really true. Yeah, this is an area which needs attention in that sense. So uh, moving further, and um, this is another uh, question that I want to kind of uh, expand and push back on. That is the uh, your argument uh, or the statement which says that atheists are often not primarily motivated by arguments, but by experience, ideals, and desires. And I think, I mean. You, you also discuss this one to an extent in your book, but again, again, I think 
as someone who comes from anthropology background looking at religion i think whether it be religion or any social phenomena it might be i think all phenomena are actually uh, you know influenced or motivated by forms of experience ideas and desire and not by arguments per se whether it come i mean it may be uh, related to religion and this is where you also talk about social epistemology right that knowledge which is constructed through social um, interaction but also at the same time in society there are aspects uh, not only of epistemology but as human beings we have this certain sense of emotions we have certain senses all of those aspects comes into play when we are framing our uh, you know uh, beliefs and understanding of the things of the world and things that are there around us and i think all, for me i believe more than the arguments per se i think that this is where all sorts of beliefs or or, or the aspects of everyday lives are uh, comes from so um, can you expand more of that or do you have anything to yeah yeah explore? yes i think what i'm trying to push in the book uh, squares well with insights that have been around in anthropology for a very long time um that human beings are only to a limited extent rational human beings and even when they're rational it doesn't mean that they are driven by arguments all the time particularly when it comes to the big big things in life um so I think that but what we know now that is already likely that atheists will be motivated by all sorts of experiences. Um, and yet I want to push it um, because it's still the case that um, when I watch a public debate or even a personal conversation between a religious person and an atheist, it's very often the case that um, the, the way the debate works is that apparently the religious believer believes in a God or in God's and then the question is, why, why should we believe in God? Give me the evidence. Give me the arguments. So uh, the, the believer is on trial all the time, so to say, right? And the atheist is the person attacking or criticizing this person. Well, what about the problem of evil? How does this relate to, to what we know from science and so on? And I think those are fair questions, and religious people should address them. But it's also highly unbalanced and uh, not this, the sort of conversation we... Uh, generally value. So I think I would prefer to work towards a situation in which it's a mutual conversation or a mutual debate. Surely the theist believes in a God, a theistic worldview, but the atheist also believes in all sorts of things. Maybe the fact that only the material cosmos exists or that there are no gods. Well, well, where does that come from? What is it based on? How does it relate to your life story and your experiences? How do you square that with science? Right. And then it becomes a mutual, interesting conversation rather than this highly polarized trial situation. And that is really what I hope the future of the debate will be. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things here is, uh, I don't know if you will agree, but I would like you to comment on this one, right? That I think it is also it also has to do with how popular debates about a religion happens in that sense that, you know, uh, religious philosophers uh, for that matter, you know, um, convey themselves as that kind of people who actually kind of, um, you know, who see their religion as something which is very philosophically, very uh, well formed and logically, you know, well put up. So it's kind of bulletproof, something like that. So uh, 
the way they portray themselves is like, okay, even if you don't have anything else, then as, as long as you go through these arguments and these things, then you should or you will be able to believe or see the rationality behind this. And then, so I think this the, one of the problem here is also the way how religion portray or the philosophers, specifically, right, the philosophers of religion in popular debates portray itself. I don't know if you agree with that. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think it's changing somewhat nowadays, um, but but it used to be very much like that. So religion understood as a set of beliefs, a set of doctrines, a set of dogmas, and little attention to its practices, its traditions, its communities, and so on. So um, it's often said that becoming a religious person is a matter of uh, belonging, behaving, believing, believing towards the very end, right? So it has had less attention for those other things. But I think nowadays it's changing somewhat. So one example of that is, for instance, another um, research area that has been pushed by Nicholas Walterstorff is the philosophy of liturgy. Um, and, all, and all religions have liturgies of various kinds, right? There are scripts about how religious gatherings and events take place. And they require a lot of philosophical thinking through. That would be really helpful. For instance, uh, some people believe that God is present in a religious, or that the gods are present, if you like. What does it mean to say that God is present? Particularly when God is omnipresent, who's present everywhere all the time. What does it mean? Right? That's an important question. Or commemoration. We commemorate people who passed away, right? Uh, maybe we commemorate events, like the fall of Constantinople. Uh, what is commemoration? Why do we do it? Uh, how does it relate to knowledge and ignorance? So lots of philosophical important questions that go beyond the kind of the traditional uh, questions about belief. Yeah, yeah, yeah interesting. Yeah. Um, um, there's a one line that you say here, uh, you say is that there seems to be a difference between religious experience and atheistic experience. What do you mean by that? Can you explore that more? Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, so there's something about um, religious experience that um, that is more uh, directly related, so to say, to the existence of God. So if there is a God, it is likely that people will experience God by way of aesthetic experiences, so the beauty in nature, for instance, uh, the, or the beauty of the stars, uh, beauty of the mountains, for instance, or in the experience of being forgiven by God, um, that is not, or maybe the goodness of God in liturgical settings. So there's something about them that is that is like interwoven with the existence of God. That is one way God could reveal uh, himself or herself to, to human beings. But that's not the case. There's, there's much more of a gap between atheistic experiences and the non-existence of God, right? So an atheistic experience could be the horrors of war, for instance, or the suffering from an illness um, in, which, right, in which one does not experience God. Right, um, but it's a big gap from not experiencing God to there being no God. Right? I mean, religious believers would agree that often we do not experience God, and there are even religious believers who would say, "I've never experienced God." Yeah. So God can be hidden for a particular time period or all the time. Right? In, in fact, that's part and parcel of what a lot of religions say. So Mother Teresa is a famous example of that. She wrote down in her, in her diaries, right? She, she, she talks about the silence and the absence of God, and yet she is a person of faith and believes in God, right? So how does one get from, like, I'm not experiencing God now in my time of illness or suffering 
to there, there is no God. Well, I think the only way to get there is something like, well, a perfectly good God would be present or would not uh, like allow me to suffer in this way or to be sick in this way. But why think that? That is a particular conception of God that requires argument. Mm. Yeah. So there's an interesting yeah. difference between the two. And I think we need to explore those such differences. Yeah. Um, on the flip side, right? Um, what if, and I think there are examples of this, that what if there are religions which kind of, which could consume this aspect of um, wars and pain and sorrows and, you know, that they their religion can only make sense because of the existence of all of this uh, on the flip side. Then how will that kind of experience and that kind of understanding of atheistic um, experience or, you know, that kind of argument work towards in terms of experience, I'm saying, yeah. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, so of course, um, experiences of war and illness and suffering and death and so on are uh, also part and parcel of all religions. Religious people are not exempt from the, from, you know, from the evils uh, in life. We all suffer equally. I mean, to, to different degrees, but it's not spread out nicely that religious people don't suffer. We all suffer. So, of course, they have incorporated these experiences and try to make sense of them. We're sense-making human beings. And... Um, that is, and that is actually another reason to think that the notion of faith is much richer than is often thought in the in the philosophy of religion and literature, because um, being a person of faith often comes with the experience of suffering, of God being absent or hidden for for a certain time period or even even longer. Um, even in the like the first and New Testaments, there is a lot of talk about God being hidden. Like even including Christ Himself, where He says on the cross, "Like why, God, why have you forsaken me?" So it's it's part and parcel of the religious narrative and story, so to say. Um, and and just pointing that out, I think might might make religion somewhat more attractive to some atheists. You can have those experiences and still be a religious person. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So um, I've exhausted my questions. Is there anything that you want to highlight um, before we wrap up this conversation? Um, let me see. Well, um, yeah, maybe, maybe I would like to emphasize that I'm not trying to disqualify any of the work being done in the philosophy of religion. I love, I love arguments for the existence of God. I love studying the arguments against the existence of God, like the problem of evil, the problem of divine hiddenness, the, the idea that maybe, um, if people are not religious, they are smarter, particularly in science, right? Explore that or whether it's a projection a Freudian projection to believe in God. I think those arguments matter, and I want—I would like to have all the evidence on the pay, on the table and think them through. So, not disqualifying any of the work out there. I'm just—I'm just saying it's a—it's a limited debate, and we're missing out on important things if we carry on in this way without paying attention to non-argumentative motivations uh, for atheism, without paying attention to these frameworks, without paying attention to the value of atheistic arguments for religious believers even if they aren't convinced by them. So maybe broaden and deepen the, the debate rather than get rid of the debate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for that. Yeah, so is there anything that you are currently working on, any project or anything that you are on to? Yes. Yeah, so I'm into uh, something related but quite distinct. So now I'm working on the epistemology and ethics of extreme beliefs, as I call them. And those are the, by that I mean the sorts of beliefs as we find them in extremism, fundamentalism, terrorism, fanaticism, and conspiracy theorizing. Uh, I think we can rightly say that extremism is on the rise these days, 
uh, both religious extremism and secular extremism, maybe be, partly because we live in times of crisis and anxiety and uncertainty. Um, and there's something attractive about extreme beliefs because they offer a black and white picture of the world. Um, and um, I think philosophy and theology have a lot to offer here because extremism has been studied by social psychology, for instance, and sociology and a few other fields, history, but very little rigorous philosophical and theological thinking. So I try to contribute to that um, with the Extreme Beliefs Project at the, with a lot of people at the Free University in Amsterdam. Oh, interesting project ahead of you. So if anyone wants to reach out to you regarding your work and regarding this podcast, how do they reach out to you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, if they live nearby, they can just come over and knock on my door. <laughs> but I guess most people won't live that nearby. So just shoot me an email. That is uh, h.d.peels uh, at fu.nl. Maybe you can leave that somewhere on the website. And uh, they surely shoot me an email and uh, I'll make sure to, to reply. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Rick Pills, for being here at New Books Network. I think your book is very accessible, even though it's a philosophy book, it's a very accessible and it's a very interesting read in that sense. And I would also encourage the listeners to have a look at it. And hopefully the listeners have enjoyed this conversation. I have thoroughly enjoyed the conversation with you. So thank you very much and have a good time ahead. Yes. Well, me too. Thank you so much. Have a good day. <laughs>